We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. You regular listeners know that for the last two seasons, we've been collaborating in a partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. The Distinguished Flying Cross is awarded to individuals who have distinguished themselves by single acts of heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in aerial flight. The mission of the DFC Society is to honor, preserve, and teach the legacy of the men and women who have been awarded the DFC. You can find out more. Visit dfcsociety.org. Now, personally, as a fan of military history and a believer in the power of storytelling, I respect and I support their mission. Now, as a radio host, I love the fact that they regularly send me great guests, and today you're going to meet one of them. We have made great progress as a nation, and female fighter pilots are no longer that unusual. What makes today's guest unique is that she accomplished a very unusual feat, being awarded two Distinguished Flying Crosses in two consecutive days. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Colonel Andrea Kniep. Hi, thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Andrea, a little bit of background here, because your story is an amazing one. I talked to one of your fellow A-10 pilots and DFC recipients, Kim Campbell. Her call sign was Killer Chick, which is pretty cool. What was your <laughs> What was your call sign? Is it something we can use on, on family radio? Yes, you can use it. My call sign was Pop-Tart, and it was because my maiden name was Van Popple. That's where the pop comes from. And Tart came from being one of the first women, I was actually the third A-10 pilot in the Air Force. So when I first showed up to uh, my fighter squadron, they had never had a woman in their squadron. So I became the tart of the squadron. And some of the fellas in my first fighter squadron still just call me tart when they see me. Now, so you said you were the third. So Martha McSally was the first, correct? No, that's actually incorrect. It was Ellen McKinnon. Okay, so Alan McKinnon, then Martha, and then yourself. You are correct. Okay, so you graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1993. Why the military, Andra, and why the Air Force? I chose the military actually because I wanted to fly aircraft and I wanted to fly fighter aircraft. I didn't have any military in my family background whatsoever. And one day I woke up and I said, I want to fly fighters. And my parents looked at me. Like, I think any good parent who patted me on the head and said, okay, thinking this was a passing phase, and uh, it never passed. And eventually we started getting postcards from West Point. And they said, why are we getting postcards from West Point? And I said, well, I sent it in. Doesn't the military fly airplanes? And eventually they said, have you ever heard of the Air Force? (laughs) And I said, well, yes. And they said, "Uh, do you know there's an Air Force Academy? And I said, what's that? And so they took me to go visit the Air Force Academy, and I said, I'm going to go there. And they said, it's not that easy. And I said, well, I'm going to go there because they fly fighters. So that's how I ended up getting into the Air Force. When I went there, women were not allowed to fly in combat. And the entire four years I was there, and I said I wanted to fly fighters, they said, no, you can't. You're a girl. And they changed the law that women could fly fighters in April of 1993, two months before I graduated from the Air Force. Let's talk about that, because I think that's another fascinating aspect of of your story. So we had Eileen Bjorkman, I don't know if you've heard her name. She recently published a book called Fly Girls Revolt that was about the women pioneers 
in aviation, and in particular the ones who really kind of kicked through that glass combat ceiling to allow women in combat. So and that's what I find fascinating. You, you started your time at the Air Force Academy, and you didn't think it'd be an option. They weren't giving you that option. But literally just before you graduated, all of a sudden that cockpit opened up, if you will. I mean, how cool was that? It was absolutely awesome because I was still dedicated to that's what I was going to do. And I never faltered when I said every time everybody asked, what do you want to do? I told them, I want to fly fighters. And every time the answer was, you can't, you're a girl. So it was absolutely incredible in April, right before I graduated, when that law was passed. What would have been the other option? Transport, refueling tankers? I never got that far because I never changed my mind. Okay. Now, there are some people, Andra, not me, but, you know, F-16 folks, who would claim the A-10 is not a fighter. That Was that your first choice? Yes, it was my first choice. I've always wanted to fly the A-10. Um, I liked its mission. I liked the closer support. I liked the fact that we supported our brothers and sisters in arms. My brother's actually in the Army. He's a year older than I am. I said that I decided to go into the Air Force when I visited the Air Force Academy. He went with me. He said, this is nice, but I'd like to go visit West Point. So he went to West Point to visit about three weeks later, and he said, okay, I'll go there. Um, So he was in the Army, and I thought it had a great mission, and I could also support my brother had he ever been out there on the ground. What a wonderful thought, Uh, although it's also impressive. I mean, one Air Force Academy graduate, one West Point graduate, your family, any any Navy folks we need to know about? (laughs) No. We fortunately sat with the Air Force, and, you know, we got the black sheep with my brother in the Army. (laughs) I bet your family reunions are a lot of fun. What was it about the A-10 Android, other than just the mission, because let's let's be honest, it's not an attractive aircraft. I mean, it's not an SR-71. Well, I think that's in the eyes of the beholder. Okay. It's fun to fly. It's uh, very maneuverable. It's slow and slow. There's lots of jokes about that, but it's good aircraft to fly. We actually see the target. We get down low. Mm-hmm. We see who we're supporting. We have multiple different ordnance that we can drop that a lot of different aircraft can't do that. You know, from cluster munitions to multi-purpose, you hear about Maverick missiles. We also carry air-to-air missiles that we hope we never shoot. And then, obviously, you always hear about the gun. And, you know, when you shoot that gun, there is absolutely nothing like the 30-millimeter Gatlin gun. Absolutely incredible to go out there and be able to do all those different things all the time. So let's talk a little bit. We've got just probably about three minutes before we have to take the first break. But And I don't know, Andrew, if you want to comment on this or not. You're out of the Air Force, but I will. I'll reserve the right of the host to, to editorialize here a little bit. You know, the A-10s are going away, and there's been several initiatives prior to this to try and shut those down and they replaced the wings. They always did something to keep them in combat in the force. But now it looks like pretty much the last gasp. I know at, at Davis Mountain Air Force Base, they're, they're shutting down the Bulldogs immediately. And a couple of the other squadrons are going away soon. Again, this is just my editorial comment. But what it looks like to me, Andre, is what they're replacing it with is a crop duster with machine gun. And okay. I, I just don't know that. I mean, clearly it's not going to have the survivability of the A-10. 
but I'm also not a fan. I, I respect your opinion as a pilot. I don't think the F-35 can do the job properly because you're right. You have to be down there right above the heads of the people you're supporting. Right. I agree with you. And I think uh, the majority of A-10 pilots feel the same way, that there is not an adequate replacement at this time for the A-10. Obviously, none of us want to see it go away, but I think that's the hardest thing is there is not an adequate replacement that can do the job of the A-10 right now. So it doesn't make sense to retire it until there is an adequate replacement to support our brothers and sisters in arms on the ground. When I tell you, you'll probably love this, but I talk to a lot of people like your brother or Army Rangers or Navy SEALs or other people on the ground whose lives depend on that A-10 mission, and they're furious about the A-10 going away. Yes, and I have too. When I talk to people who hear that, I think it, it concerns them when they hear about that because they've been on the ground, they've had A-10s overhead, and they know the impact that we've had when we've supported them, when they've needed support in those dire situations. And now they're not sure who's going to be overhead and what they're going to be able to do. I've heard stories even, Andre, about the, the A-10 pilot never even had to deploy their weapon systems or fire the gun. Just showing up was enough to cause the, the bad guys to, to head for the hills. Yeah, just the sound when they hear them, and sometimes just the show of force of flying over low has made a difference based on what has happened in the past when agents have been there and actually employed. Well, Andrew, if you don't mind, when we come back, I'd like to talk about two specific examples of that, the two occasions for which you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, and uh, we'll, we'll do some storytelling if that works for you. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Benjamin Garcia, joined by Andrew Kniep. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with two-time Distinguished Flying Cross Award recipient, Andrew Kniep. Andrew flew the A-10 aircraft, which is, I we agree, is both of our, one of our favorite aircraft. Andrew, you were, at the time that you earned the Distinguished Flying Cross citations, you were in Afghanistan, correct? Yes, I earned uh, both of them in Afghanistan right after 9-11. And you're with the 74th Expeditionary Squadron, which was part of the 332nd Air Expeditionary Group, if I got that right. That's correct. So describe to me and other civilians like me the role of a airborne forward air controller. Airborne forward air controller is someone that takes control of the airspace and is the person who's talking to the ground controller and is deconflicting the aircraft in the air. And then I am working with the individual on the ground to figure out where they are, locating them, what target they have, and then pairing the aircraft, their ordnance, with the correct target. And at the same time, I'm deconflicting those aircraft in a busy airspace to make sure we don't have any blue-on-blue fratricide, as in any aircraft running into other aircraft so that we can actually execute the mission, support the people on the ground, and also make sure that everybody's in different areas. So you're kind of an airborne concierge. Yes, in some way. It can get very hectic with a lot of different aircraft up there and making sure we got all the right people in the different places. 
So you're, if I understand correctly, so you're really literally talking to the people both on the ground and in the air. And sometimes, but again, I'm just a Ben gets a dumb question every show, Andrea. But so there are aircraft that are sent out on a sortie with a specific target package in mind and the munitions to to execute that specific mission. But then there's also aircraft that are just up there waiting for the call if necessary. Is that accurate? Yes, that is accurate. But also, I can roll in and strike a target as well. Because as an A-10, even though I am the forward air controller, I am also an A-10 that can perform the role of close air support. So if required, I can also strike a target. Now, how long had you been in country when March 5th, 2002 rolled around? Well, I had not been in Afghanistan. We were actually in Kuwait executing Operation Southern Watch. So when that was going on, we were in Kuwait and we could hear what was happening in Afghanistan. And there was a lot of aircraft that were unable to locate targets based on the fact that they were too high and they couldn't see them. And there were no forward air controllers in the area. And so we're sitting in Kuwait listening to some of this, getting the reports coming back. And we're like, hello, we're forward air controllers. Why don't you send us forward to Afghanistan? So I flew the second two ships of A-10s into Afghanistan in order to support Operation Andakana there in the beginning of March of 2002. What was the rationale for that, for not just turning you all loose? I don't think at that point, I think they thought they had the aircraft over there that could do the job. And it took them a little while to realize they were unable to do the job and see those targets and get the folks where they needed to be. And then they realized they needed the A-10s in there after they couldn't get bombs on target. And after they had the target area was saturated with aircraft overhead and they had several aircraft too close to each other. And that's when they realized they needed the A-10s to do the forward aircraft control mission. And they decided we need to fly in there and we need to go in immediately. So before you arrived, what, we're talking, what, B-52s, B-1s, maybe some F-16s? Yes, they were over there. So B-51s, B-52s, and the B-1s, they were coming in on the target higher headquarters. So they were flying in with a direct target to hit. And so they were not coordinated with the uh, fighter aircraft that were overhead. So those were some of the problems they were having is they were flying directly through the airspace to their target where fighters were operating. And that's where they were having near misses between the aircraft. And at the same time where the fighters were operating, they were talking to the uh, ground personnel and trying to work those targets, but having trouble getting their eyes on because they were flying higher than what the A-10s were doing, and then having to deconflict from the other aircraft in the area. And we're talking much higher. We're talking, what, 25,000, 30,000 feet for a B-52? Yes. You know, we just had someone else on the show who was talking about um, artificial intelligence and how that's changing the, the modern battlefield and the digital age. And the author of that book was a former Army Ranger, was talking about how the military currently, to a great extent, is sort of stuck in the World War II way of thinking and that Navy needs X amount of ships, Air Force needs Y amount of aircraft, and no one is thinking about that cyber battlefield. I'm curious if you would know, and maybe this is just 
too far out of left field. But Afghanistan, I thought, was unique in that there was really no air-to-air threat. I mean, there was ground-to-air threats, but there was no Afghan Air Force. Correct. It was a uh, air-to-ground threat. And so that's why you didn't see any of the F-15Cs going in there. And that's one of the things for the A-10. We need to go in when there is no air-to-air threat. We're not an air-to-air fighter. So that's why that wasn't a problem for us. We had to watch anything coming up from the ground if it was shooting at us. But no, there was no air-to-air threat in Afghanistan. Did you have complete autonomy if something shot at you, you you were able to just shoot right back? There are rules of engagement. In every theater, there are rules of engagement. And obviously, it would depend on where it was coming from, what the rules of engagement were, and where it was located in terms of friendly forces, as well as was it in a civilian populated area. That would be a big factor in something like that. Fair enough. So this first mission, we're talking about March 5th, 2002. You mentioned you flew out of Kuwait, if I got that right. So that would explain, in reading the citation, it described you had two air refueling stops and it started off as a a four-and-a-half-hour sortie. How much of that was travel time into the the mission area? It took us four-and-a-half hours just to get to the target area. So it was overall almost an eight-hour sortie altogether, is one of those things we didn't know we were actually going to Afghanistan, and they just told us, hey, you need to go to your room and not come out. Somebody will come get you. And when they came and got us, we went in and we got the briefing on pretty much, it was like an hour briefing on here's all your products, here's how you're getting there, here's where you're going to refuel, and how everything should go down. We were going to get there at nighttime, when to put on our NBGs, And then when we got there, who would be talking to on the ground? At the time that we took off, they did not know where we were going to land. They gave us three approach plates in two different countries. And they said, worst case, we would fly all the way back to Kuwait, and it would be just over a 12-hour sortie. But they were working that out, and they should have it finished by the time we came off the target. Having a place to land seems pretty important to me. Andra, but so, but I mean, you're pretty pretty excited. You were chomping the bit, and now you had the chance to go. We come back, Andra. I'd like you to, if you don't mind, talk us through those two missions. Just a pretty amazing story, ladies and gentlemen. Your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Andra Kniep, part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society. You can learn more. Visit dfcsociety.org. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're chatting with Andrew Kniep. She's a former A-10 pilot and the two-time recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross. What's really interesting about her story was she was awarded those two citations two days in a row for two separate missions. Andrew, we're talking about March 5th, 2002. You were dispatched or flown out of Kuwait to your target area in Afghanistan. And initially when you got there, was it as a airborne forward air control, your prime mission was to deconflict the airspace or what was going on, but you, you knew there were troops on the ground, right? 
Well, actually, when we arrived that first night, we got in there and we were immediately called to where there was a firefight. So I didn't do any forward air controlling the first night. We were called in where there was a fight and we went in and talked to an unmarried aerial vehicle, deconflicted from him, and then immediately got to where there was enemy troops in a steep ravine that was in a firefight about two kilometers away from where there was a target with enemy troops. And I had to deconflict from the unmanned aerial vehicle and get my eyes on the target. There weren't any other aircraft in the area at that point in time. Now, was the UAV armed or was it just a reconnaissance? It was there strictly for reconnaissance. And, you know, that, I love these stories because, Andrew, it's so fascinating how times have changed. I mean, you're talking, you were, were you talking to the UAV operator? Yes. When I first got there, I was talking to the ground fact. And then at that point in time, I had to talk to the UAV operator because I had to get him to a certain altitude to deconflict him from my formation, because that's where I had to get to an altitude that I could get my eyes on where the friendly forces were in that ravine. And also to try to get my eyes on where the enemy troops were on the opposite side of the ravine. So you're, you might be talking to somebody in Nevada. Absolutely, and I did not know where the individual was. That's fascinating. So I've had several of your friends, associates in the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, talking about missions in Vietnam, and one fellow actually came back with palm fronds stuck in his tail. You weren't flying quite that low, but you were in a steep ravine, and if I understand the citation correctly, there was a very narrow access alleyway avenue of attack to be able to get the ordnance on those bad guys at night. Yes, and it was, I had a lot of trouble seeing them. It was steep and very narrow, and I could only see them from one direction. So I could point my nose in there, and when the UAV marked it for me, I could see them. But once I put my nose on them, I would lose it under my nose, and I couldn't see them. So if you think of the ravine, the enemy forces were on the right side, and the friendly forces were on the left. And I lost him under my nose, and I was uncomfortable dropping the weapon. So at that point in time, I put a marking round on there so I could confirm it, and then I could see it, but still not good enough for me to employ. So I put my wing mount in front of me, and I got my nose as close as I could underneath his aircraft so that I would not be in the frag pattern of his bombs. But then I could watch his nose of his aircraft and see the marking round, and I actually let him drop his bombs first because then I could control his aircraft. So how close were you to that lead aircraft at that point in time? Too close. Um, <laughs> closer than I would have normally been and probably too close than what I was probably allowed to be. But I knew I was at a safe distance, and I knew at that point I could make sure his bombs were going where they needed to go, and that the friendlies were going to be safe from those bombs. And then I had a deconfliction plan that I told him he needed to do his safe escape maneuver, which is how he comes off target to make sure he doesn't brag his own aircraft, and that when he did, he was going to come off hard left as soon as he was clear. And when I saw him coming off left, I was going to pull my nose up, and I was going to come off hard right to make sure I was clear of his aircraft, and I was also clear of any frag from his munition. And then as soon as I did, I got up quickly as I could and came around 
and got a correction from the bombs, which was higher up in the ravine. He did strike the target, and I came in right after him because the mountainside was pretty well lit up from his bombs, and I came right back in with bombs. So did you, you didn't drop on the first pass, you came back around? Correct. I had to drop on the second pass. There was okay. no way for me to drop. I just could control him, meaning I gave him the cleared hut instead of the ground controller because I told them that I knew exactly where everybody was, and they gave me authority to go ahead and clear him to employ his weapons. You know, Andrea, one of the things about being a civilian doing this show, I always have to be careful not to, uh, I mean, obviously people would tell me to shut up if we got into anything classified, but it should be an indication to everybody listening to your story that just the fact that you were worried about getting hit by fragments from your own bombs probably speaks to the, the altitude you were flying at down that canyon. So you deployed a total of four 500-pound bombs, as I understand it. It confirmed that you accomplished the mission of taking care of the bad guys, but your night was not over. That's correct. Once we were done, um, we had to go refuel again. We were already getting low on gas because we had flown before we had our last air refueling en route right before we crossed the border into Afghanistan. And so now it was time we needed more fuel. So we went to the tanker. At that point, we weren't sure if we were going to go back in to the uh, target area. And, of course, we had been airborne for quite a while, so they did not want us to go back into the target area. And then we found out where we were going to go land, and they sent us into Pakistan at that time. And so that's when we started flying to an air base there, which was interesting to go land because at that point in time, they didn't want any aircraft to come in. They had some uh, search and rescue airmen and aircraft there but they didn't want any combat aircraft there. So we flew there. They wouldn't turn any lights on on their runway, and they had blacked it out. We had never landed before any A-10s, completely blacked out or on night vision goggles. That was not allowed at that time. So we did one of the first blacked out um, landings with night vision goggles on in the A-10 in order to land on that runway. That sounds pretty exciting in a creepy sort of way, but <laughs> successful. So when the Air Force talks about, an, and I use the quotation fingers, Andrea, an austere environment of you deploying out of or landing, that, is that what they meant? Yes, that is. So that's where we ended up going to land. It's no longer a classified location. So you had a, a quite an eventful evening. So you did you spend the night there in, in Pakistan? Yes, we did. They wouldn't turn on any lights. They wouldn't help us. We ended up taxiing clear of the runway. There was another two ship of A-10s that landed in front of us. We were the only four A-10s that went that evening. We pulled off the runway, jumped out. We put rocks under our tires because the other aircraft that came in with the maintenance crew had not arrived. We shut down our engines. And then they shuffled us into an aircraft hangar in which we were not allowed to leave that aircraft hangar. And that's where we lived for approximately the next eight days until Operation Anaconda ended. Now, so the next day we're talking about March 6, 2002. You're at that austere location. I, I love that. I love that phrase. And you get fired up and you, you take off again on, on our next mission. And what I found interesting about this Andrea, is when you get there, well, I guess the existing, the airborne command and control that was up on station there had to leave to refuel, and then here comes Andrea, who is just a captain, and you took over the whole battle space. 
oh, yes, it's great when you show up and you're immediately told you got it. And it wasn't just a small piece. It was everything over the entire airspace. So lots of airplanes in there. And again, a lot of concern about the blue-on-blue fratricide with all the aircraft to ensure no one was going to run into each other. We had different what they consider chill containers, which are just how they deconflict the airspace and where you're working with different ground parties. So you can put someone, you know, an A, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. It's just a way to send different fighters to different locations. Andrew, when we come back, I'd like you to explain that more to me and other civilians out there listening because, I mean, I get this picture in my mind's eye of just almost like mosquitoes up in there all buzzing around and I want to talk a little more about how dangerous that can be. Ladies and gentlemen, your host Ben Bueller Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Andrea Kniebs. Andrea is an A-10, former A-10 pilot. She retired as a colonel in the United States Air Force, twice winner of the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is awarded to people who distinguish themselves by single acts of heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in aero flight. Andrea, before we took the break, you were talking about deconflicting on the second day you were up on this mission. And how many planes in how little space? Can you describe that in a way civilians would understand? Um, there were 11 different strike platforms up there, from F-15s to F-16s, B-1, B-52s, so a lot of different aircraft. In terms of the space, it's hard to describe, but tilt containers is just a term. But if you think of a grid system, it's just kind of a grid, like in six different grids. So four different containers, think of three on the top, three on the bottom. And it's just a way to say, you go to number one, you go to number two, you go to number three. So you can send aircraft to the different numbers in order to keep them separate. And another way to do it is to do them from height. So you can do it laterally into those different number grids, or you can do it by altitude from 15,000 feet to 13,000 feet. So you've got the altitude deconfliction. So there's a couple different ways to do it between the 11 different strike platforms. I had three different unmanned aerial vehicles, but I also had some of the bomber aircraft that were coming in on those higher headquarter targets that were just cutting right through the middle of everything. And so I'd hear them check in and just say, hey, I'm coming through at 20,000 feet and I'm going, you know, right through one, three, and six of that grid system, even though I had different aircraft already in there, and I would have to stop them and keep them out of it. And they were, in their mind, already pre-programmed to go to those targets. So I'd have to move them around, which caused a lot of consternation. Well, when you're in that position, though, even though you're a captain, I assume you're the final authority. I mean, it's your airspace. They have to do what you tell them to do, right? Absolutely. Even though they don't really care for it, I had to tell them and they stopped and they went. And sometimes I went and said, 
you're going to number six and you'll just sit there till I'm ready to move you, even though they had a time on target at that point in time, I was changing their time on target because I'm talking to potentially the people that are close to that target. I'm making sure it's clear and I'm executing other targets that are nearby that, that the person on the ground needs help with right then. And the target that the bomber was going to is no longer the priority based on the ground site. Let's talk a little more about that blue on blue phrase, because that, as I understand it, again, from reading the citation, you have personnel on the ground who may or may not have been aware of the pre-planned bombing packages of the B-52s and the B-1s, and that could be a really, really bad day. Correct. And a lot of times the ground fight is very fluid. So what it was in the morning may not be what it is in the night. So that's one of the things. So not only are we deconflicting aircraft to make sure they don't run into each other, but also deconflicting where are the people on the ground, who is the priority, what fights are the priority. And that's why when you think of this grid system, I'm talking to multiple people on the ground. So not only am I moving the aircraft to different locations, I'm also talking to different people on the ground in each of those locations, trying to figure out who needs what on the ground, where, and getting their targets on the ground, and then trying to match the different aircrafts based on their ordnance to that target and getting all the folks paired up to ensure that we can cover all the targets and get people in as quickly as possible on the targets in order to support our ground troops to ensure that we get them safe and get that firefight stopped as soon as we can. Andrew, you're making my head spin here. You're making me dizzy. I can imagine doing this even in a on-the-ground air control center, much less in the cramped confines of a moving A-10. How does that even work? Well, it takes a lot of organization skills. In the A-10, it's funny, you'll have a knee board that you can take notes on. A lot of people have different techniques. So between a knee board, I have a wingman, and I'll give him a task. So I'm talking to him on what's called an interflight radio. And so I'll have him, depending on how you want to do it, keep track of all the airplane call signs, and I'll have him keep track of all their munitions. So I'll do that. And then with the different the ground facts I'm talking to on the ground, I'm keeping track on where they are and what targets they have. And I can either write them on my knee board, which is a piece of paper on my leg, or I can have a grease pencil and I'm writing them on the side of my canopy. And even though it's night, I can usually use a what's called a finger light. It's a little light strapped to my finger and I can point it up there and see what I'm writing. And when I'm done with it, I wipe it off with my glove and I keep going. Amazing. And that's using one radio that I'm talking to the airplanes and I'm using another radio that I'm talking to folks on the ground and I'm just flipping back and forth between radio channels. So are all A-10 pilots trained to be airborne traffic controllers or is that specialized training that you received? No, they're not. It's a training most go through, but you start off just as a normal a-10 pilot, and then usually the next step is that you become a Ford Air Controller. Andrew, I think one of the best parts to me of this story, I, I did, you know, it seems like everybody got out okay, but the, the last 
few remarks in the DFC citations said that you found and escorted four friendly vehicles out of the threat area. Did they call you or you and your wingman were just flying along saying, hey, we know those guys. Let's let's fly cover for them. That was actually a very, very difficult situation. There was a missing ground party that was reported right away by the commanding control aircraft that went off station. And so when we go through all the handoff items, we have a list of things that we go through. There's a list of things that we talk to with each of the ground parties when I'm talking to them to make sure I have all the information. But one of the very first things I was told was there was a missing ground party. So at the very end, there had been a very bad firefight. We had it under control. We were about ready to leave, and there was a vehicle convoy coming near some of our friendly forces who had just survived a firefight based on us calming down and being able to control the enemy forces. Because this convoy was coming towards them, our folks, the guys on the ground, the friendly forces, immediately started yelling for help because they had just got out of that firefight. And they were looking for someone to get bombs on target on the convoy. It was one of those things I didn't feel comfortable with. The convoy was not in the right location. The convoy shouldn't have been where they were in terms of not really on the road, but off to the side of the road. That's not where the enemy would have been. I had a couple fighters airborne that saw them. And to be honest, they were yelling at me. They were yelling on the radio to let them in. They were yelling on the radio that they needed to kill them. And I kept telling them to stand by to the fact that I turned my radio down so I could barely hear them because, once again, I was in control. And I told the guys on the ground that I could see them and I would be the one that would roll in with my gun because I had them in sight. Hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. And immediately they got a little closer. They saw the friendly forces we were protecting and the lights on the truck flashed. Mm. And then our guys on the ground said, knock it off. There are guys. That's our friendly convoy. Wow. What a compelling story. Andrea, thank you so much for spending time and sharing your story with our listeners today. It's just really, I love chatting with folks like you. And I, I thank God every day there's people like you out there protecting our nation. What advice or thoughts would you give to young people, Andrew, who might be considering a career in in the military? My biggest thing is that the military gives you opportunities and experiences. I've done things that I never would have done and things I never thought I could do. And that's the biggest thing. You always hear about health care, guaranteed jobs, education, but the camaraderie that you get and you can do anything in the military that you can do out in the civilian world, but you won't get the same opportunities and experience that you own the military and it's absolutely incredible any shout outs you'd like to give to any friends there locally and turning in on our uh, colorado spring station kppf i'm shout out to pretty much everybody here but i'd like to give a shout out to air force 10 cap an incredible group of people that do great things here and probably the unsung heroes of the air force andrea thanks again for spending time with our listeners today all right thank you so much i appreciate it my pleasure Ladies and gentlemen, you can learn more. Again, visit dfcsociety.org, a great organization doing great things. This has been your host, Ben Buehler Garcia. You can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Until next time, all policies and procedures remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.